I think it was Henry Kissinger who once was introduced with some glowing introduction who then said uh, that the only person who would recognise him from the introduction would, be, would have been his mum. <laughs> so I'm sure my mum would have been very proud by some of those comments. So, so thank you, thank you very much. And I, I hope this evening I can make it entertaining for you and uh, can share a few uh, life stories with you more than any academic work or any, any ratios or uh, anything technical. So hopefully I can make it a little bit, uh, a, a little bit interesting. Um, John Paul Getty, the famous uh, oil industrialist uh, billionaire, once said that you only needed to do three things in life, just three things in life to be happy, successful and wealthy. The first thing you had to do was to get up early every day. The second thing you needed to do to be happy, successful and wealthy was to work hard every day. And the third thing you needed to do to be happy, successful and wealthy was to find oil. <laughs> And what I want to talk to you tonight about is how I found my oil and maybe give you a few tips on some of the things that have helped me discover oil and then uh, maximize that op opportunity. And if it can be useful for you and it can stimulate a few ideas and a few questions, I'd be delighted if you could then fire a few points back at me uh, when, when we finish. So let me... Let me um, uh, let me start. First of all, I've been very fortunate to work alongside uh, Larry Ellison and Tom Siebel and Mark Benioff in building self-made billionaires, work as part of their management as their executive team and build up. So I've learned a few things, made lots of mistakes, and I'll try and share a few, a few with you. Um, but it didn't start out that great. As for those of you who, you who are fishing in Ardo's of accents, I'll put you out of your misery. This is a Scouse accent. I was born in, I was born in Liverpool and brought up in Liverpool in a council house and um, sadly my father died when I was uh, uh, eight years old through smoking and my, uh, my poor mum brought four of us up, my three sisters and myself, uh, with pretty much no money. She was a school cleaner. So the expectation then uh, at the time, because we had no books in the house, we had no magazines, there was no economists, no new scientists, no Guardian, no Telegraph. My sole source of information at the time was the Liverpool Echo. And whilst the Liverpool Echo was great, it's not that great. Um, so um, the expectation, the expectation um, growing up in Liverpool in those council house days was that you get to 16, you stay out of trouble with the police, and you get a job. And that is deemed success. And fortunately, my first bit of uh, look and my first tip for you uh, was nothing beats being in the right place at the right time. And fortunately, I went to a school in Everton Valley, which is a, di a, di a district of Liverpool, and I had, not, not particularly good school, but I had one amazing mathematics teacher. And this guy was just terrific. He could stand at the front of a room and, and um, make mathematics interesting to 13-year-old, 14-year-old hormonal boys. And that's quite a challenge, right? So he, and he spotted a little, bit of talent in, a little bit of talent in me and said to me that I could go to university. Now, for me, I didn't know anybody ever who'd been to university. Nobody. No uncles, brothers, cousins, nobody. Not a kid in the street, nobody. So my experience of, of university was, in those days, Bamba Gascoigne. Today, it would be uh, Jeremy Paxman, I think, is doing a university challenge. And you know what university challenges are like, right? You've got people answering questions on Greek mythology, Shakespeare, ancient history, post-French post Renaissance poetry, and they're answering questions even before he's asked, he's asked the question. And I knew nothing about any of those subjects. I knew a little bit about maths, a little bit about football. I'm a Liverpool supporter, by the way. Um, and a little bit about pop music, and that was it. So my, expect, my expect, uh, expectation was I could not mingle with in this sort of audience and could not go to university. That was just too, a step too far. However, he, he broke, that, he broke that, um, that barrier, that poverty of expectation, <clears throat> and they encouraged me to go to university, which I did. I went to uh, Cardiff University. I went and did a maths degree, and I then started to look for my oil. What was the future? What was the future whereby I could see where I can make a living and something that I thought was the future. I decided, actually, I made a mistake. I decided the future was nuclear power. And so I went off and did a PhD in nuclear physics. Uh, took three years, exactly three years, because there was no funding. And if I hadn't been, and just as a point, if there hadn't been any education funding at the time, I would not have gone to Liverpool. 
uh, excuse me, I would not have gone to university. I'd be in Liverpool digging holes in the road, probably. So the fact that there was a free education at that time was phenomenal for me, back to being in the right place at the right time. I've paid the UK government back PLC in spades for that investment through taxes, but that's great that they invested in me and I got that, that opportunity. Anyway, I did a PhD in, in nuclear physics and decided this was not the right, I made a mistake. This was not the future, this was not my oil. It was overly regulated in my opinion, it, it wasn't a meritocracy, and it was very bureaucratic. That did not excite me. That was not where, that was not giving me a buzz. And so I had, to, I had to look around and say, well, what else can I do? Unfortunately, I learned to program computers to, um, to solve the mathematics that I was, uh, that I was trying to uh, work on at, uh, on the nuclear, uh, nuclear side of the business. So I left science and I looked for some jobs and I got a job at a company called Logica, a small consulting company in, in, in um, 1984, earning na the grand total of 9,000 pounds in London. And I started programming. And through that, I worked on a, a, a product called Software AG, which is something called the Relational Database. I worked there for, 12, for about 12 months. And then this startup company, a little startup company called Oracle, called me up and said, we've got a headcount for one person. And would you like to come over? Now, I'd, I'd learned a little bit about Oracle, but I didn't know too much. So I went over and I met the people there. I met Jeff Squire and uh, Ian Thacker and a few others. And I thought, these people are top of their game, which is another point that I'll keep coming back to. If you choose exceptional people, you've got a great chance. If you don't choose exceptional people, you'll really struggle. So to work with exceptional people is amazing. And Larry Ellison was just getting the company going then. This is, this is um, um, he'd formed the company in 1979 and Oracle was starting. It was a startup in Europe and I was number 25. There's somebody in the audience who was there a week or two before me, Sekendu Powell, uh, who I've become reacquainted with. Anyway. Long story short, so what was, what was Oracle's value proposition? How had Larry Ellison started this company? Oh, by the way, there are 140,000 people working at Oracle today. They're pushing up towards a 200 billion market cap and they're the second biggest software company in the world after Microsoft. Um, so how did, what, how, did they get, how did Ellison get that started? Back to being in the right place at the right time. First of all, he had spotted, uh, at the time the conventional wisdom was, Hardware companies wrote software only for their computers. So IBM wrote software for IBM computers. Hewlett Packard wrote software for Hewlett Packard computers. Why would you write software for somebody else's computer? That was deemed to be stupid. If IBM wrote software for Hewlett Packard computers, that would surely help Hewlett Packard sell more, more hardware, more computers. From a customer's perspective though, that was terrible. Because you had to buy IBM, if you bought IBM software, you had to buy IBM hardware. Ellison's great vision was two things. Let's look at it from the customer perspective. If I can write software that runs across all computers, independent, then the customer can choose whether they choose hard, uh, Hewlett Packard, Unisys, IBM, point one. Second point that his, his genius what make, makes him now the, whatever he is, the fourth or fifth wealthiest person on the planet, was to, he got lucky. He was in the right place at the right time and he spotted something. IBM at the time were a massive, massive company, size of sort of Amazon and Google combined now. It doesn't appear that way to you guys who are looking at IBM today because they've been struggling for some time. But at that time, they were unbelievably dominant. And they were under uh, antitrust pressure, pressure from, 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 from uh, the US government and they published some of their research work. Some of that research work was called System R, which was about relational databases. And a gentleman called Ted Cobb, who produced this system R work, they published it in the, in, the, in the technical journals of the day. Ellison spotted it and said, I can write that software. It's called Relational Databases. And it made it life much easier for the customer to store and retrieve data using an SQL language. Ellison spotted that and said, but not only am I going to write it for IBM, I'm going to write it for Hewlett Packard and have this across board. That was his genius. And he, start, he started the business like that. And, um, uh, that's, that's, what, that's what he did, but that decries really his, his ability. What he did was hire tremendous talent around him. How did he do that? He created the vision of the future. So his vision of the future was, I, was Oracle was going to overtake IBM. Now when I first heard him pitch this, I thought, how ridiculous is this? 
We're 50 people, 60 people. IBM are 300,000 people and the most dominant computing platform on the planet. But he was incredibly articulate. He put the plan together, how the world was going to change, how data was going to become um, so much more prevalent, how the mini computers were starting to dominate, how uh, PCs were coming into the world, and on and on and on. He created a compelling vision. And this is another uh, point you'll, you'll see when I summarize that this is something you have to do. If you, create, if you can create a compelling vision, then you can attract great talent. He attracted amazing talent from Tom Siebel to Mark Benioff to uh, Craig Conway. Half of, half of Silicon Valley was run by ex-Oracle people at one stage. Ellison doesn't get enough credit, in my opinion, for hiring just amazing people. I'm not talking about myself, by the way. I'm talking about the people in, in, in the US who, who run most of Silicon, uh, most of Silicon Valley. Um, um, Oracle went IPO in, uh, in uh, 1986, just shortly after, shortly after I joined. I had to say it wasn't down to me, unfortunately, but uh, uh, I joined us in the technical world and then moved into sales and then moved into distribution and ran the UK and then went on to the European management team. Um, but I think it was Bill Gates who said something along the lines of success is a lousy teacher. It teaches smart people that they that it seduces smart people into believing that they, they, they um that they can't make mistakes and oracle was doubling every year and the way ellison said it was they he paid you well he doubled the company every year if you hit your revenue targets and you focused on the revenue you were you were safe if you were missing your revenue targets you were likely to be fired so the company had this amazing drumbeat of fast, 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 you have to go faster, you have to go faster, and you must not miss your numbers. However, he built a very simplistic distribution channel, very, simple, very simplistic business, which was the French were the French, the Germans were the Germans, the Italians were the Italians. You put a country manager in, they run the division, they run the country, and they can do anything they like if they hit their revenue target. And so when I was running the UK, my biggest competitor was Oracle France. My second biggest competitor was Oracle Germany. Why? Because a customer would call me and say, Steve, we want to buy some of your great software on our computers. And by the way, how much is it? And I'd say, 100,000 pounds. And they'd say, well, I've just called your French division and they say it's 95,000. So you say, okay, 95,000. Oh, I've just called the Germans and they say, we had 46 marketing departments, 40, 46 shipping departments, different logos, different partner programs, different, different sales compensation schemes. Very simple from Larry's point of view to run the business, but a disaster from a global company point of view. And in 1990, the company very nearly went bust. It was very, very close to running out of cash. We ran the, ran, ran the, ran the ship over, ran the, uh, the car over the cliff, to so to speak. Um, and then we had to pick it up. Jeff Squire uh, came in and said, what's the minimum number that we can't miss? We had to cut costs beneath that. We had to fire a lot of people, like 400 people had to go. We had to put the wheels back on the car. And slowly but surely, we, we built the company uh, back up. But what it, uh, actually, Oracle was fined 100,000 pounds for accounting malpractices. It was, it was uh, had to settle 24 million pounds in, in lawsuits because of uh, accounting irregularities. I think if it happened today, there, there would be people going to jail. At that time, it, we got lucky. Um, and um, it, what it taught me was that this model of the, the French are really the same. The French are the same and the Germans are the same. You have to have a common distribution model across all of these different, uh, different uh, areas. Um, one, amu one amusing story, uh, and I've got many actually about Oracle, but just as a true story, I remember talking to Larry and he was saying that when they were getting the company going, there was three of them working late one night and they were trying to figure out the P&L and the balance sheet and the pizza delivery, they got the pizza delivery boy come in and he arrived and they were talking about P&L, they sort of understood P&Ls, right? What you, uh, what you're selling minus what your costs are, sort of your profit and loss and a bit of cash flow, they understood that. But balance sheets, Larry and, and uh, Bob Miner and uh, the, the three guys sitting there, Ed Oates, balance sheets, don't really understand this stuff. And the pizza boy, the pizza delivery boy says, well, I, I understand that. And he started teaching them and talking to them about the balance sheet. And they said, well, how do you know this? He said, well, I'm studying accounting. So they hired the pizza boy 
As the CFO of Oracle, true story, the first, CF, the first CFO of Oracle Corporation, this great you know, 200 billion market cap company, the first CFO, the pizza boy, true story. Um, uh, personally, I, uh, so I, I, I grew up in Oracle, I learned a lot, this myopic focus on sales. Larry Ellison used to have a comment that was, if I, if I bump into you in the corridor and you're not selling and you're not developing, Tell me really slowly what you do. And it's true, if, you, if, you're not, if you're not bringing revenue into the company or you're not building the product, what are you doing? Okay, it's very simplistic, but it, it nevertheless, it keeps that myopic focus on, 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 uh, on revenue. Um, I, was, I, wanted to run, I wanted to run Oracle UK, and uh, I was on the European management team. Larry thought I wasn't right. I was, over, I was overlooked. I couldn't get, my, I couldn't get that position. And, um, he hired somebody else who I personally didn't think was right for Oracle. And so um, I left. And I remember at the time I had, I was on the European management team, I had a couple of thousand people in my organization. And I left to join a company where I had two people. So I had to step out of my comfort zone again, like I had going to university, like I had go, leaving the nuclear industry, going into software. And I think all great things, all great things never happen in your comfort zone. And friends and family said to you, you're crazy. You know, you're the world's second biggest software company. They're doing great. You've got 2,000 people. You're on the European management team. I had to step out. I wanted to run something. I wanted, it wasn't my oil. I didn't feel satisfied. So I wanted to run the, I wanted to run the, um, uh, a team. And I joined uh, Tom Siegel, who had also left um, Oracle to set up a company called Siebel. What did Siebel do? Let me just quickly say, what did they do? And um, how did we manage to, as Sam said, hire 8,000 people and build a 60 billion market cap in four years? Kind of, kind of amazing, actually. So what was, the, what was special about Siebel? Well, what, they, what their compelling vision was and what we put together was we'd seen a company called SAP build applications for general ledger, accounts payable, inventory, type things. But, but believe it or not, the conventional wisdom of the day was if it, when it came to sales and service and marketing, you write your own stuff. So there was companies writing their own sales systems and their own marketing systems and their own, uh, uh, their own customer service systems. And Siebel's idea, his genius if you like, was to say, hang on, that's silly. That should be the same in the front office as it is in the back office. Let's write some software packages, application packages, and we'll write them. We'll write them better. We'll, we'll execute them faster, and we'll run. We'll, we'll, we'll run uh, quicker with this idea. And it turned out to be a pretty good idea. And so, as I say, the company got got to sixty billion. Very different. Um, it was like a military school working at. Uh, like a, uh, Tom was a sergeant major. Uh, the drum beat from the CEO was phenomenal. If if you thought it could take four hours, it had to be done in two. If you thought it'd take a week, it had to be done in two days. The speed and the pace of the organization was, was, um, was just incredible. Some of the small things that we used to do at Siebel just to keep us moving faster was if we had a meeting and you couldn't come to a decision, the most senior person in the room had to take a decision. You couldn't leave the room and say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it and we'll have to come back and we'll have another think about it. No. Whoever is the most senior person, take a decision. Everybody had to support them. No politicking. You could always come back in a month or two months' time and say, "I told you that wasn't right," but you had to take a decision. No, deci the no decision was not acceptable. Um, and there was all sorts of things we did at sea, but just to keep that drumbeat, that pace going, uh, it was brutal to work there. Brutal. Um, I was re recounting with Sikandu just before we came in that. People were fired on a regular basis if they couldn't hit their numbers. And I remember having a conversation once with Tom about somebody who'd, who was a good person who'd missed their quarter twice, and he said, we have to fire him. Why? I said, this guy is really good. It sends out the message that we have to hit the number. We can't fall behind. It sends the messages to everybody else that you can't do it. It was brutal to work there. 5% of everybody's department was fired every quarter. So you had stack rank you people, if you refused to stack rank, Siebel would stack rank them and he'd get them wrong. So you could end up losing good people. It was brutal to work there. Not very nice. 
I left after five years. It, it was a military school operation, but everyone was making enormous amounts of money, and but brutal. I was burnt out. I decided I can't keep this up. I, I quit, um, and I took 12 months off. And uh, in 2002, I got a call from um, a guy called Mark, Mark Benioff, who um, had said to me, I've got, this, um, I've got this crazy idea. It's called the end of software. I said, what's that, Mark? You know, because Mark Benioff had worked at, at Oracle, and so I knew Benioff from, from Oracle. And he was, a, he was a, I know this is being recorded, but I'll say it anyway. He was a bit wacky then, he's a bit wacky now. He's a, he's a terrific guy, but he has some, uh, <clears throat> some interesting ideas. Anyway, he called me up and said, it's, um, um, I've got this idea, it's the end of software. And you've got to remember, this was just uh, after the dot-com crash, and software companies were making enormous amounts of money. Siebel in particular, as, 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 I, as I mentioned, Oracle, SAP, all these guys were making huge amounts of money. But he came up with a simple idea. And so what was his compelling idea that has taken Salesforce now to the world's fourth largest software company with 30,000 employees, the fastest growing software ever, uh, enterprise software company ever, faster than SAP, faster than Microsoft, faster than Oracle, faster than Siebel. What was his, what was his vision? What was the magic? source, if you like, that he spotted. His idea was very simple. It seems ridiculously simple now. But at the time, the conventional wisdom, once again, was that you buy software and you put it on your computers. So whether you're a pharmaceutical company, you're a retail company, you're a manufacturing company, you used to buy this software from Siebel and Oracle and SAP and others, and you put it on your, on your computers, and then you get armies of Accenture, Capgemini, Deloitte, PwC, consultants to come and fix it and come and install it and, and, and build it. And Mark's vision was, well, why can't, soft, why can't business software be like Amazon? How is it I can log on to Amazon at the weekend and buy a book? In those days, it was pretty much books and not much else. But how is it I can go on there, I can search, I can click, I can buy, it gets delivered tomorrow. And it's so easy, it's always available. I don't download any software, I don't install any software, I don't get any error messages, I don't get any patch releases or any bug fixes, it just works. And then I come into the office on a Monday morning and everything's hard. Why can't we build business applications just like Amazon? And in those days it was called utility computing and on-demand computing. And, but not only did he do that, he also said, well, let's do it in CRM. Now, this is where Siebel had been so successful, right? And where Oracle was and Microsoft was and SAP and, and Onyx and, and uh, um, uh, Act and Goldmine and Pivotal. The world was awash with CRM software, CRM uh, customer relationship management software. Everybody had it. And this would be conventional wisdom would say, don't go into a super saturated market. That's where we went and destroyed that market. Destroyed it in the sense of moving it all from on-premise to pretty much on-demand. There's very few people buy on-premise CRM software today. But when we started out, it was kind of tough because this was in 2000 when, we, when the dot-com crash, some of you, there's a few gray hairs around this audience, but not many actually. So some of you won't remember the dot-com crash, but it was pretty brutal, right? Apart from Companies like Webvan and Pets.com just going out of business almost overnight. The Nasdaq lost 76% of its value. Even great companies like, uh, uh, like Cisco lo uh, lost 85% of its value almost overnight. Everything was being thrown out. The, ba you know, the, the baby was proverbially being thrown out with the bathwater. And here was I just starting with this company called Salesforce.com. <laughs> going around people and they're saying, you're going to be joking, you're a dot-com company? I thought you guys had all gone bust. Uh, well, no, we hadn't because we got this vision of where the world's going to go. And one thing I've learned in the tech industry is that you tend to overestimate what happens in one year and underestimate what happens in 10 years. So we stuck to the, to the, to the strategy that this was going to be the end of software. Why, why would you want to buy software if you had the security around your data? Why would you want to install this when you're a pharmaceutical company or a retail company or a manufacturing company? It'd be nuts, right? And so I was passionate about the, the, the strategy that we would put together with, uh, with Mark and some of the other guys um, uh, um, around him. We, we, 
And looking at it from the customer point of view, what were we doing? We were taking away all that complexity. The complexity around installing software, the cost of doing it, upgrades, bug fixes, patch releases, the CIO going to the CEO and saying we have to spend another million dollars with SAP or Oracle or Siebel or whatever, and the customer and the CEO saying what's a business benefit? And the answer would be none, we just have to do it because the software company has told us if we don't upgrade we're in trouble. And so everybody hated software. We tapped into the fact that most companies hated, and I use that word carefully, hated software. The pricing was hard, the pricing you needed a PhD in logic to understand most software companies pricing because if you bought one on the server you'd need two on the network and three on the PC and seven of these and two of them and four and a half of these and the customer thought I'm, I'm being conned. Um, the patch releases, the bug fixes, the upgrades and so on and so forth were very very painful and what we did was we tapped into saying look if you buy more if you have more users you pay a little bit more if you take your users off, you pay less. Very simple. You don't buy any software, you rent it. Software as a service. We're going to deliver software as a service. And this turned out to be a pretty good idea. And uh, we built on that with sales and then customer service and then marketing uh, and, and on and on. And today, Salesforce, I didn't look this morning, but Salesforce is around the 90 billion mark uh, in market valuation. To put that in context, that's about the size of Goldman Sachs. Uh, it's bigger than Starbucks, uh, getting up there for Nike. It's only about 30% short of GE. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? How can, we, how can we build a company that size in basically a couple of handfuls of years? So um, latching onto a good idea and then, and then executing. So let me move on to a couple of ideas and secret sources of how we did it in Salesforce and uh, give you a, um, and then I'll, I'll pause for some, some questions. Um, one of the things that we had at Salesforce, which we were passionate about and still are, is something, and if you excuse my language for a moment, it's something that we use at Oracle a little bit, but we used to have something called the five P's, which was piss poor planning leads to poor performance. And Jeff Squire, who's my boss at Oracle, who worked for Larry, uh, used to always use the five P's. But you might say, well, everybody has a a plan. Sure, we have a plan, you have a finance plan and you have a headcount plan. I mean, that's basic 101 business planning, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something that we call a, a V2 mom. If you can give me a, some of the, which of the slides on this one? Is it that one? That one. Keep going? Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, I'm going backwards. Huh? Oh, is that? There you go. I'm still going in the right direction? Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me catch up on the slides here. But, so we had this idea of you know, end, the end of software and then uh, we, we came to this V2 mom. I'm gonna jump across a couple of slides here. Let me just, this is the office of the early, this is the first Salesforce office. This is this, the company that's worth 100 billion now. This is how we got started. And we were taking people's data to, uh, to, to, uh, to run it. So you don't need a lot of money to get started, right? You don't need a lot of money. You shouldn't be spending fancy offices. And right, so this is what I wanted. So what we did, and what, if you know anybody who works at Salesforce, and there's 30,000 people, you work at Salesforce? Have you got a V2 mom? Of course, of course good, good answer. That would, that, would have been, that would have been really tough if you'd said no, right? <laughs> Particularly what I'm going to say now. So one of the things that we do at Salesforce and still do meticulously is as a management team, we'd get together and we decide what is it that we want? What is the vision of our company for the next 18 months? Not 20 years time, not five years time. What would we be delighted with and excited by if we achieved it in 12 months time? What energizes us? What gets us going? What is it that, and if we can't write it down, then it's not gonna happen. So if you can't articulate it, it ain't gonna happen, right? So what is the vision? What do you want? What excites you? And we'd write this down as a management team, so there'd be Benioff and 10 of, 10 of us there, and we'd, we'd get together, and that's what we'd do. And then what are your values? What are the things about that that you are uncompromising about? What are the values that you have to have? What's important about that vision? Then what, what do you have to get done to make that a reality? Whether it be in sales or product development or customer service, what do you have to get done? 
What are the obstacles? Everyone's always great at the obstacles. I'm sure you'll agree if you've been doing your own V2 moms. Everyone knows all the negatives, all the things that are going to get in the way. But the science will show you that if you write some things down that you know are going to be problems, you tend to tackle them better when they, when they come and hit you in the face. And then finally, the metrics. How do you know when you've got there? How do you know when you've got there? So we would do this as a management team, as an executive team. Then the head of sales would take their bit, the head of development would take their bit, and that would cascade back up into the, into the, into the overall plan. They would then pass that down, right the way down the organization. So today, 30,000 people in Salesforce, I'll guarantee, will have a V2 mom. And if they don't, they'll be in trouble. So everybody knows their little piece of the cog, what they have to get done to make the bigger cogs all fit together. Normally, people don't do that. They've got the top-level business plan, and then they just get told what to do. And not only, not only that, you can also see other people's V2 moms. So I can find out what's going on at the end of the corridor, what that guy's working on or that girl's working on. And it allows us all to come, it allowed us all to come together. Um, so in the early days, most of our, most of our values, um, whoops, most of our values were, were built on customer success. Now, was this because we were super altruistic? No, we were software as a service. So the customer could turn us off. When, in the old days, when you sold software, you could throw software over the wall and the customer generally couldn't get rid of it. Once they put it onto their operating system, it was like, like chewing gum on the carpet. You couldn't get it off, right? And so the, so the software company knew you weren't gonna throw the software out because you couldn't. With software as a service, you can switch it off. So can, can customers switch Salesforce off? Absolutely. Is it easy? No. But can they switch it off? Absolutely. So part of our fundamental um, philosophy, philosophy was we have to make the customer successful. And, if we, and that was very alien to software companies. And a lot of people talk about customer success and customers are king, but most, most of the time it's lip service. We built an organization to make sure that the customer is, 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 uh, um, is successful. Um, innovation, typically software companies innovated, they, they would, um, uh, they would release uh, one release one, every, every two or three years. Salesforce released uh, three releases a year because we only had one copy of the software, right? We were just up, up, updating it. I haven't got time to go into multi-tenanted architectures and all that. Growth and trust. So growth was, you know, we could have got this company to uh, call it a 10 million, 10 million pound company. We'd all be happy. We'd have a nice lifestyle. That wasn't what the executive team wanted. We wanted to grow the company to, to much greater heights. And trust, we had our customers' data. If we lost that data, we were in big trouble. So I'm really a little bit tight on time, but let me give you one example where these values came in. So in... Um, 2005, we had a whole series of what we used to refer to in Salesforce as the O word, the outages. And what I mean by that is a bit like the electricity company. If the electricity supply goes down, everybody goes out, right? And so we had several of these outages where all of our customers, all of our prospects just, just stopped dead. This is not good. It's not good for business. Uh, not only that, our competitors, SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, all had proxy servers looking at the Salesforce uh, accounts. And of course, they are all trying to show poo-poo the whole software as a service is not a good idea because they're all on-premise software. <clears throat> and so we had several of these over a, a series of days and we all got together in San Francisco. The executive team got together and said, what are we going to do about this? Because this is, this is life-threatening. And you know, there was all sorts of ideas came up. Obviously, we've got to stop development and get every, all the development team onto fixing the problems. Uh, and secondly, there was discussions about how do we hide all these outages from our customers? And we said, no, but that's not our values. And one of our values is trust. So what we decided to do is do exactly the opposite. We started to publish all of our outages. Publish them to, our, to the press, publish them to our... Um, our competitors, publish them to our prospects. And in fact, if you go on to trust.salesforce.com, you'll see today a whole series of traffic lights around different machines and what, what your services, and if they're going slow or they're not, or they've gone out. What that did was, first of all, it made our customers say, well, at least you're, 
being honest, trust. Secondly, we still knew that we were a lot better than people's internal services. We had still had three nines availability, right? None of our competitors published anything. And so when the press started to say, well, Microsoft or whoever started to say, oh, Salesforce service has gone down. Well, what about your service? Oh, we don't publish that. Oh, really? Oh, well, these guys do. Why don't you publish yours? Uh, well, we'd rather not. And, and it was a, a, maybe a counterintuitive situation, but we basically felt that we should, we had to adhere by, um, by our values and that one being, uh, being trust. Um, a couple of fun things, and now I'll come to, this, uh, to try and summarize what I said. Working for a Californian company, it wasn't all, it's not all about just, you know, making money and driving it forward. We had some crazy things. I mentioned the wacky uh, ideas um, at the beginning, but um, up until recently, uh, you'll probably remember, we had a, a, a chief love officer at Salesforce. I mean, you've all come across a chief financial officer, a chief executive officer, chief operating officer. We had a chief love officer. It was a dog called Koa. It was Mark's dog and uh, often if I'd been with, with Mark you'd be talking to him and you'd, he'd, he'd be talking to you and then you'd say yes! you say oh it must have said something great. Now the dog had peed against the fire hydrant and he'd been training the dog to pee against the fire hydrant for, 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 for months. But he loved that dog, it came into the office every day even though dogs weren't allowed and uh, we had the chief love officer which was, which was um, uh, which was COA. Um, we had some disciplines that if you got caught on your phone, if you got caught on your phone in a management meeting, your phone went into the ice bucket. So we just grab your phone and into the ice bucket, great, go to IT, get another one, it'll get you, you have one back in two days, but no problem. If you're on your phone in a management meeting, it's in the, it's, it's in the ice bucket. Uh, one of the ones I found really hard to do when I first came into the company was, um, I was sitting in a management meeting, there was 10 of us, 15 of us, and the doors burst open, and Mark says, it's Heidi. And I'm thinking, Heidi? Who's Heidi? Is she in marketing? Is she in sales? Is she? No, it's Heidi from Hawaii. Yeah, and what does she do? She's the masseuse. A masseuse? Yeah, the executive, need, need, the executive team need a massage. What? You know, we're trying to figure out what's going on, but hey, this is California, right? Just get on with it, right? So, so we all had to sign up to our massages and we'd start our management meetings with yoga and uh, it was kind of wacky, but great fun. And it was a pleasure to work there. It was a professional experience of a lifetime and um, I, couldn't be, I couldn't be prouder. Um, I retired two, two years ago. I've got to go really fast, I'm running out of time. I retired two years ago and I decided to apply some of these ideas to a little company called First Sale <laughs> to see whether we could do it locally in the UK or was it just a, this California thing. And we got this company, First Sale, going and it went very, very nicely at, uh, addressing a problem in HR, on-demand uh, uh, software as a service. And we sold it, I sold it last year to Sage for 150 million pounds. So that turned out to be a pretty good idea too. So, um, right, so, uh, so I'm gonna have to summarize then because I, I want to make sure there's plenty of time for, for you guys to ask some questions. So number one, nothing beats, trust me, nothing beats being in the right place at the right time. So you, ha you know, try and imagine trying to start Amazon or Google or, or Oracle or even Salesforce today, you could not do it. So you have to look at, uh, looking at, find your oil, find what you're passionate about. You have to be in the right place at the right time. And if you're not, then engineer it to be that place. Nothing comes from staying in your comfort zone. If you're feeling comfortable and happy and it's all tickety-boo, you're not pushing yourself. You're not, making, you're not gonna make things happen. Um, Ellison, Benioff, everybody I've ever worked with and had created these great companies had a really compelling vision of the future. And that allowed them to attract exceptional people. And exceptional people, if you, if, you, if, you, um, if you forget everything else I say, do that. If you surround yourself with great people, people who are better than you, you're, you're, assured, you're assured success. Um, don't build business models where the French, are, the French will tell you the different, how many French people we've got here actually, probably quite a few, or the Italians, pick a, we'll pick a nationality that we, that we haven't got. They'll all tell you we're different, the Brits will tell you they're different and everything has to be done different in the UK to San Francisco to every, nonsense. The world's global, you have to have a consistent business model otherwise you'll get into a mess and that nearly, nearly crippled Oracle. Um, revenue solves all problems. 
including your love life. You have to grow the business and you have to grow fast or you die slow. You have to grow fast. You have to put people on revenue targets. You have to grow this business and make them feel that when they come home on the Friday night and they're ahead of their targets, life is wonderful. They want to take the kids out. You want to take your husband out, your spouse out, your partner out. You want to have fun. And equally, if you're behind your goals, it's miserable. It's miserable. You don't want to take your wife out or your husband out or your partner or your spouse. You don't want to play with the kids. You don't want to do anything. And that's the culture that these guys create. And that's what makes it move uh, at such a pace. Um, if you build everything around customer success, you'll be, you'll be very close to being a, a, a short success. Remember the five Ps, the V2 mom, this poor planning leads to poor performance. Make sure you've got a great plan and not just a financial plan. Certify everybody, I skipped over this thing. Um, I shouldn't have done, but one of the things that is, um, and I'll take two minutes because it's important. One of the things I'm amazed about is people who don't understand their products. They really don't, you know, and yet they're, they're, they're talking to customers and their, their product knowledge is wafer thin. We used to do something at Salesforce, which was great fun, right? We'd get a uh, management team together, something of this size, and we'd put people around the table and say, right, we want you to articulate the latest product. And just vote amongst the table. Who can present it? Do a two or three minute pitch. So, so the front row, who's the best at presenting it? Okay, so it's, it's Joe. Joe goes forward and Sue on the other table and Pete on the other table. They all go forward, they all go forward and then you compete again. And the last three or four then present to the whole group. And the person who does it really, really well will give them a thousand pound check or a five thousand dollar check. And they'll get glory and prestige. Fantastic, it makes sure that everybody learns the product. But you also say, who are the worst? Who are the worst out the management team? Who can't present the products out the management team? Who's the worst? Let's name and shame them. And let me tell you, nobody wants to be on that list. So if the management team all know the products, then guess what? The people beneath them know the products and the people beneath them know the products. So certified people, and we used to do it every six months. If you couldn't pitch the latest product, go back to school and figure it out. And if you consistently do it, go somewhere else and fail somewhere else. Um, and the last one, which I'm gonna, I'm really ashamed to skip over, is probably one of the most important things to people at Salesforce. You can do good as a business, you can do well as a business, and you can do good. When the company started, we built a philanthropic model into the business, one, one, one model. 1% 1 of the stock, 1% of the product, and everybody got six days a year to work on non, on non, uh, with non-for-profits, right? It was easy to do at the start of the company because there was only three people, the product didn't work, and the, the, the stock wasn't worth anything, and we only had three employees. Now there's 30,000 employees. Every one of them gets six days a year to go and work on something that's non-for-profit, helping people who are less fortunate than, than we are. 85% of the staff, when I was there, 85% of the staff took their six days a year. Only one rule, two rules, no religion, no politics. And what we found was our, our employees who were working on a tough computer science problem thinking that the customer's a bit tough and the, pro the, the budget's tight, They'll go and work on Teenage Cancer Trust or a hospice, and then they come back energized because they know they haven't got any problems at all, right? This is all relative. So we're very fortunate to work in the computer industry where we've had great careers, we get well paid, we're well looked after. Go and help other people who are not as fortunate. And we're very proud of that. Today, Salesforce runs about 30,000 charities for free. No catches, no upgrades, no nothing, for free. And it's part of our philanthropic model, and 85% of the staff take their time raced through that a little bit too quick. but um, So that's, that's the end of my formal presentation. I'd be delighted if that's triggered any thoughts or any questions, and the stage is yours. Thank you for listening. upvotes questions that have already been submitted um, but I'll kick off with an anonymous one and then we'll go to <laughs> someone in the in okay. the audience um, first question the aggressive drumbeat revenue focused culture sounds very similar to investment banks um, yeah. do you think that can work today when there's so much focus on culture and work-life balance when you've, you know, you've got the Googles and the Facebooks really advocating for that sort of environment 
Um, yes, I do think it can work today. And I think, you know, it's, but it's, it's finding a balance, right? You don't, I think we all accept, you don't want the, the sort of the happy farm where people browse in, browse out, and yeah, we, we make some sales, we make the business grow. Well, great, if we don't, it doesn't matter. They're never going to succeed. They're never, if success, if, if you define success is we want to grow. Now, if you remember on that V2 mom, we had growth as a value. If the company had got to the stage where we wanted to, the executive team and the company wanted to say, let's get to a million, 10 million, whatever the number is, and then we'll run it as a lifestyle business. That's okay. That's not a problem. If that's what you want to do, that's okay. But then don't try and uh, then join a company that wants to be a, you know, the, the biggest in its space or uh, the, most, the most relevant in its space. And so you have to choose what your values are and where you, uh, where you want to be. It can equally swing too far the other way. And I think, as I said when I was talking, Siebel was too far the other, the other way. It was super aggressive. It wasn't pleasant to work there, um, in my opinion. Uh, and it went over the top on the, the, the growth and the culture of the demand of, of people's work-life work balance. Um, we're big on, on, at Salesforce, we were uh, very keen to work hard play hard, but you know, we have to get stuff done as well. Okay, thank you. Um, the next question is from David Tuck. Uh, yeah, can you ask a question? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, Steve, you talk about um, exceptional people. Um, how do you, you know, both to work with, but also to hire, how do you distinguish exceptional from good? Well, exceptional from not exceptional, particularly, um, you know, exceptional from good or very good. Yeah. Um, it's not easy, right? We all, we all make mistakes. In fact, Sakendu sitting behind you and I were talking about it just before we came in. Um, some of it's uh, down to a whole bunch of attributes. Well, it depends on what the role is that you're look, looking for because, you know, at Salesforce, we used to have this idea of a, a, a mountain climber. So you want to be the CEO? Okay, so we have to look at you. Do you have the attributes to, to run a significant department? Does it look like you can stand up? To, does it look like you can be a leader? Does it look like you can articulate yourself? And if, if so, we'll try and help you be a, a mountain climber. Or do you want to be an explorer? Do you want to work in maybe sales and then marketing and then maybe alliances and then maybe product development or whatever? Or do you want to be a deep diver? You know, do you want to be the, the world's or the company's expert on cybersecurity or whatever it may be. And obviously each of those roles have different attributes that you're looking for. Um, but you're looking for people who are, are passionate, uh, are proud, have a sparkle in their eye and some fire in their belly and, and also are going to get on. You don't want everybody who wants to be the CEO, right? That, that's not a good balanced team. It's like a soccer team. You don't want everybody who's chasing down the pitch to score the goal. Um, so it's difficult. It's not easy and that's why um, you make mistakes. I've made lots of mistakes. Um, but also, if you, if you find your mistake and you hide somebody who's wrong for the job, either they're not going to be successful. So either, either find them another position where they can be successful or they have to go elsewhere and you know it's not going to work. But we look at a whole bunch of attributes. Uh, I've got a, a ton of stuff I could go through with you uh, privately if you want on some of the, the, the leadership skills and talents that we used to look for and home for depending on which area they, that they were applying, uh, applying for. But it's tough and most people take average as being okay. Don't do that. Okay, um, next question is which emerging technology companies do you rate and why? Whoa. Well, I'm, uh, uh, maybe in, in, in not naming names, I think one of the things I, um, I've got a bunch of investments I'm doing, angel investments I do now in, in different areas, but you know, I, I know AI is being hyped a lot, but when you look at what cloud computing's brought, we've effectively got going on out there, infinite computing power and it's for free, it's not for free, but it's asymptotically going towards free. We've got infinite storage, and it's for free. And okay, bandwidth's probably lagging a little bit, but we're, we're not, you know, it's going that way. So you have to sort of step back and say, okay, I've got infinite computing power, infinite storage and infinite bandwidth. How can I apply that to a business problem on behalf of the customer? So I think if you can start to look at how can I be, be an insurgent for the customer? How can I help them really get more efficiencies and more effectiveness or take away complexity or do something for them 
that they must have, not would like to have, but must have, then you'll start to see companies that will, uh, will, 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 will prosper. And um, I think it's all in the cloud now. I don't invest in anything that's on-premise. I mean, it's, that's, I'm not saying you can't make money out of it. Of course you can. But it's, for me, that's dull. The future to me is, uh, is there's a lot of, it's going to be a combination of AI and people. So I'm looking at a lot of companies in, in that sort of space. Um, I, I've never seen so much innovation going on because you know, 20 years ago, you had to go and buy these computers and, and finance them. And now you, now you can get this service so free. It's uh, uh, not for free, but it's so cheap. You can, there's so much innovation going on now out there. It's incredible. It's very exciting. So uh, you joined a lot of companies when they were small, uh, and you played a part in you know, creating and scaling yeah. them up. So did you ever think of starting out on your own? Uh, yeah, um, I did. Um, but I was having so much fun with Salesforce, I, uh, and, and so much fun at Oracle and Siebel. Um, so I started, the nearest I got to was, was to basically start first sale. So I started the first sale company, which I mentioned very briefly at the end. But I was still at Salesforce at the time, and so I couldn't do two jobs. And I didn't. I was tempted to at one time to leave Salesforce, but I was enjoying it so much and we were having such success that I put a, a CEO in charge, and then just mentored them to 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 do what I would have done. So um, no, I didn't. I, I, I didn't miss it. I don't have any regrets. Let me put it that way. So so I, I actually helped other people take on that role of being the. I don't have a mass, believe it or not, I don't have a massive ego. I don't need to be the, the guy at the front, even though I'm standing here in front of <laughs> a couple hundred people, 100 people or whatever it is. Um, so. Perfect. Um, next question. How did you manage to maintain an agile culture when managing such a huge organization? Uh, that's a great question. And um, I think, particularly in Salesforce, um, this whole V2 mom planning thing really helps a lot. All of our management meetings, and I don't know the, the lady uh, there, sorry, what's your name? Ah? Alta. Alta might be able to tell you. All of our management meetings we would have as an open forum, and I'm sure Mark still does them today, where you can tweet uh, internally on what was then chatter, where the, the management meeting was not just, you know, 10, executives in a room and we decide what everybody else goes to do uh, is going to do it's a bit like i think it's, i think it was steve jobs wasn't it who said you know hiring smart people and then telling them what to do is stupid and it's it's right you know you hire smart people and get them to tell you what to do but you you set the strategy and then let them so be be, be very strong and very solid on your on your vision and your strategy and then on the tactics allow people to say well the best way to do this is such and such a way so this whole v2 mom prom, uh, 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 planning process would be to say this is what we need to achieve as a company but product development you need to build this you go and figure out how you do that i don't know how you, i don't care how you do it but you figure figure it out and i remember one of the first things uh, Mark Benioff said to me when he was uh, trying to get me into the company, and we were just getting started, and we were selling to what the Americans call mom and pop shops, you know, little, little tiny companies. And at Siebel and Oracle, we'd always sold to the bigger organizations. And I remember saying to Benioff, you know, Mark, you know, I'm not sure I understand, I know how to sell to small companies. And I'll never forget his response. His response was, neither do I, but we'll figure it out. And so I think th this planning process whereby you just give people the overall strategy and say, right, you go figure it out, allows smart people then to build that department vision, what's success and how they're going to get there. So all these V2 moms down the line, Benioff's not setting them, the management team's not setting them, they're just setting the, the next layer and then people beneath it figure it out. Right, Hopefully. Um, next question's from uh, Wei Chi Kong. Timing is usually out of one's control. So what are some actions that you suggest so that we can increase our chance to be at the right place at the right time? 
<laughs> so what was the first part of the question? How, how do I? Um, timing usually is like out of yeah. control. Yeah. Well, and, and, and yeah, I mean, if I could tell you everybody, everybody where to be in the right place by the time, I'd be a genius, right? But I mean, you'll know it. You'll, you'll know if you start to think about it. Like I, I, I found when I was doing the nuclear stuff, I, I just felt this is not, I, th I thought nuclear power was the right place at the right time when I went into that area. And I quickly realized it wasn't for me. It wasn't my own. If you don't feel a passion and you can't see the vision and you can't see where it's going to be and you can't create that compelling idea of where all this could go for, for you personally, because your passion will be different to somebody else's passion, right? Everyone has different things that excite them and get them up of the morning, get them working hard and get them out of bed and that discovering that oil is different for everybody. But if you are like I was, I was always interested in growing businesses. That, turned, that excites me. Having a, lifetime, a lifestyle business doesn't excite me. Getting a business to a few million to 20 people and then ha making enough money and keeping it at 20. Some people, that's success and, that, and they're delighted with that. That never in inspired me. And, but that, uh, that doesn't mean to say it's wrong. It just doesn't inspire me. So everyone has different passions. Find some passion because nothing happens without passion. If you're, not ex if you're not energized, you're not excited, you can't see where it could be, lead to, you haven't found it and you're in the wrong place. Question from Jay. Hi, Jay. I guess this was a little bit answered earlier, but uh, I guess with, with Siebel, you know, what was it about that two-person team that really differentiated from all the other two-person teams that were around at the time? Um, I think I, th I think if I was naming one thing, it was speed of execution um, and discipline. I mean, the company was overly disciplined, in, in my opinion. Um, it was a bit like working in a military school where you could not step out of line. Um, and that, yeah, I was on the, I was part of the executive team, but a lot came from Tom, Tom Siebel's personality is very much like that. And I'm sure if he watches this video, he'll be, he'll, he'll, he'll be criticizing me, but anyway, that's, that's my opinion. Um, so speed of execution is a competitive, is a very much a competitive advantage. If you can work out, you know, one and a half times the pace of your competitor and you've got quality and you have the rigor to not let things go out of the door which aren't really, really high quality. High quality and speed is a very competitive advantage and even though there was a large number of uh, sales automation products in the market space when people, Siebel was not the first, it came quite late to the, to the party. But they out-executed them, uh, out-executed uh, uh, the, the, the players in the marketplace. They went bigger, they went higher up the food chain, they chose some very smart strategic alliances. They thought about how do we get to the vision very carefully and then executed very, very, very fast and aggressively. Um, there's no magic formula for it, but if I was naming one thing, speed of execution is, is that drumbeat coming from the executive team, from the from the CEO um, was fast. Um, and we've got one more question. Um, what was your biggest mistake oh. over your career and, and what did you we're, learn from it? We haven't, we haven't got that long. I mean. <laughs> um, mostly, mostly uh, biggest mistake. Uh, I think it's back to one of the questions earlier on, uh, probably hiring mistakes where you think people are going to be really successful and, and they not let necessarily let you down because it's partially your mistake, partially their mistake. Um, you know, sadly I've had to remove, fire a lot of people because that's life, right? If, if, if they're not right, you have to recognize that quickly and, and move them out. And generally you lose a year. And what I mean by that is if you hire somebody, and sometimes the, ten, the temptation when you're going really fast is you just need a body. You need somebody to fill that space because it, the work's building up here and you've got so much to do over here. And, and you think this guy or this girl, oh, oh, she'll figure it out. And you, you make that and you're not quite sure and you make that decision and you hire them. And it takes a, you know, two or three months for you to recognize that they're not really working out. Normally it'll take you a month or two to get around to trying to coach them to see whether you can solve the problem with them and then you realize you can't 
So you have to move them out, either the company or, or in, out of the role. And then by the time you hire somebody else, you're talking about three months, another three months, three months, and by the time you get somebody else back, you've lost a year. And I've, I've lost many years uh, by, by uh, not hiring the right people. And I'll still make mistakes, but I'm very, very focused on looking at, is this, is this person right and do they gel? I used to use actually, uh, uh, the, the values of, of Salesforce, when I was hiring in Salesforce as an example, I'd say to Jay or whatever, it, uh, you know, um, if, you, if you are going to come and work here, because it's a two-way thing, it's not just about me giving you a job, it's whether you're going to be successful here, right? I used to say, look, you know, if this is a high-growth company, uh, I think to somebody else's question, if you don't like that pressure, you don't want this constant change where you, there's new products, you've got to, your division's going to be halved, you're going to have to grow another division. And if you don't like that, please do not come here because you won't be successful. If you don't like customer success, if you really want to make a sale with the customer, which often happens with some salespeople, and then you want to say, right, I want to get on to the next one because I get the buzz out of closing the deal. Please do not come here because that's not our culture. That's not our values. We have to make the guy that you sold to or the girl that you sold to successful, right? Innovation, we're going to have three releases a year. You're going to have to go on training courses three, three times a year to keep up. If that is not your cup of tea, you want to learn, go once and then you're done, please do not come here, right? And philanthropy, if you're not interested in helping other people, you're probably not going to gel in with this company. So I used to use the values a little bit to help people qualify me out. And that's okay, because then they're not going to be successful. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's amazing advice. Um, thank you so much. Um, just quick before we say thank you, oh, Steve. Um, I've got my, sorry, one last, oh, I've yes. got my, um, my email ID somewhere. Yes, oh, I got so it somewhere, I've got, I've got to go right there, either way. Um, oh gosh. <laughs> okay, I thought it was, there you go. So I appreciate, you know, sometimes it's hard to, ask questions and sometimes it's intimidating and sometimes you might not have got it got your question through but uh feel please feel free to ping me on my private email address which i don't show sure i says mail okay steve.g.garnet at gmail.com and uh i'll get back to you as soon as i can that's very kind um we have steve's kindly agreed to stick around for some networking drinks they're yep. going to be in park restaurant two which is just across the quad um Akshay, do you want to raise, sure. wave your hand? So if you follow Akshay Dhanan, he can direct you. But please join me in thanking Steve. Thank you. Thank you.